Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a friend of mine, one of the best front people in the world, Jenny Beth, is on the show. And we will have more on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother, and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Thank you, Tristan. I love you so much, buddy. And also, thank you for everything you do on the show. I don't love you because you do this stuff. I love you, you know. Yeah, I love you because I love you, but then, you know, anyway, I could be having this call on the phone. So, anyway, I'll move on. Uh, and if you wanted to uh, get in touch with the podcast over Facebook, there's a Facebook page, there's an Instagram page. Both of those are at Turnetta Punk. You can find me. On various forms of social media, like t- Twitter and Instagram, basically, at left for damien uh, If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling everyone you know that you love what we do here. Letting people know that you uh, you find this podcast entertaining, that's, that's the best way to support. But there's also ways to support the show by subscribing to it and rating it on iTunes, giving it a five-star review. Thank you to everyone who does it. And thank you to people who give it less, too. But I'm really thank you to the five-star review people. Also, you can head over to Patreon.com. There's a Turned Out of Punk Patreon page that uh, we, we put footnotes up over there and, and other stuff. And thank you. Thank you so much to the people that support the Patreon. Really, I can't thank you people enough for uh, believing in this show, you know, and, and, and keeping this thing going the way you have. Uh, also, I got to give a huge thank you to the fine folks at Vans. Vans Shoes came aboard a long time ago. House of Vans came aboard a long time ago on this podcast because they believed in what we're doing here and they wanted me to do it without having to spend money out of my own pocket to keep this thing going each and every week. And I really got to thank them for continuing to support this podcast because it is uh, it's something I really love doing. I love doing this thing. I love doing this thing because it gives me a chance to to learn and to nerd out and, you know, and yeah, have great conversations like today on the show with my buddy, Jenny Beth. Now, Jenny Beth, for those of you who have not seen her live is truly, as I said, off the top of the show, one of the best people doing it in all of rock and roll. 
But that certainly isn't the only thing she does. She is also someone who runs a label, someone who is a very accomplished actor and celebrated actor and and definitely kind of moving into that world in a major way as well right now. And yeah, someone who's a true artist and so someone I've wanted to have on the show for a very long time and it's finally happened. She has a brand new solo record, which is awesome. It's called To Love Is To Live. You can pick that up now. And, uh, yeah, I, I really, this is a fun conversation. We go to a lot of different places and I learn a lot over the course of this thing. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Jenny Beth on Turned Out a Punk. Just did, uh, I've just did an hour, uh, boxing, like literally just stopped <laughs> 10 minutes ago. Oh. So I'm all, I'm really disgusting. I'm very glad this is not filmed. Yes. I'm um, all sweaty and salty and yeah, my <laughs> my hair is all over the place. But, you know, it's it's a bit like how I look when I finish a gig, you know, basically. Well, I'm glad this is not being recorded because I'm covered in avocado and because <laughs> I made lunch for the kids just now. So <laughs> we're both we're both perfect well. podcast attire. Yes, perfect. <laughs> uh, well, Jenny, I want to thank you so much for coming on this show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Well, yes, uh, just, just, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry. No, no, I was just wanted to make, to say that it's been such a long time. We haven't spoken, but I really remember. And uh, I I don't know why we didn't meet again, but, you know, so when you asked, I was I was stoked to talk to you again. Yeah, it's been like seven years now. Like last <laughs> time we did it was for video. So... <laughs> Oh my god! But but time yeah. flies when we're having fun, and uh, I'm, yes. I'm glad we can reconnect now. You know, in our in our both disheveled attires. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, Jenny, I gotta. There's so much stuff. I'm obviously a huge fan of what you do and and what you've done um, since the last time we spoke. And I want to get to all of it, but I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is, Jenny, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? <sighs> I would say, oh God, I think, yeah, I think it depends what you, it depends what you describe like punk, I suppose. Um, because is, I put a spell on you. Is that, is that punk? You know what I mean? I kind of feel it is, you know, and it's definitely the foundation of like, you know, there'd be no cramps without that. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I, I think it was, uh, so if we have to go for the feeling of punk music, uh, which is screaming an opinion, <laughs> uh, then then I would go back to 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 Nina Simone. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, in my childhood, uh, singing "I Put a Spell on You." Um, um, but then, I mean, in terms of punk bands, I suppose, uh, and I might be very controversial here, but in terms of what you define as punk music. But, you know, when you're a kid, the first music you listen to are the big bands, isn't it? Then mm-hmm. you go niche. I mean, that's how it happened for me anyway. But Absolutely. So I think the first big bands that were, like, um, had a punk spirit would be The Clash. Um, and But, again, it might be controversial to say that <laughs> <laughs> for some people. Um but then a little bit later, I would say that my first connection to the spirit of punk, of punk and the music of punk would be Fugazi. Mm-hmm. Because um, when I saw Instrument, I can't remember how old I was, but I, and, I, and I listened to the first Fugazi record, um, something about it really um, 
turned my mind around in terms of how the music and the discipline of living could be all mean one thing. And that's something I had never really felt for music before. I felt it for cinema, Mm -hmm. for films, like directors like Cassavetes, where, you know, the work he would produce and the life he would have would be the same. Mm -hmm. You know, art is life and life is art. And I felt that with Fugazi, it was for the first time a band that was not only giving you the best time with their music and the best release of energy, etc., um, but also it would give you um, notions of how to live, you know. And I wouldn't like go as far as saying education, because, but actually it was a form of education. I mean, Ian Mackay taught me, you know, uh, some things I didn't know about, you know, about drinking, about being disciplined, about being civil, about about respecting others, about, you know, it was a whole philosophy around the band. Um, and I don't know if that's what punk music is, but in a way, you know, um, yeah, in a way it would be. And by the way, um, punk music for me, so I'm, I grew up in France. Uh, I was speaking... French and, and you know my family's French um, so the English language for me was the language of rebellion because it was the language of punk music <laughs> and I and it was a language my parents didn't didn't understand yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's but a power it was to amazing. that yeah it was and so I immediately really wanted to learn it uh, really wanted to learn it it's funny you brought up the directors thing because I've never thought about that. But like, especially with you know, um, you know, Cassavetes and directors from the French New Wave, and sort of this idea of like, you know, like your 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 life's work is you know expressed through film. But you know, you you always think about film. Well, I know I don't. Not you. Sorry. I always tend to think about film from a Hollywood <laughs> perspective, where it's like mm-hmm. so much of it's make believe. But there is this sort of whole you know real spirit of that sort of directors you know bleeding for their art. At yeah. the same time, even in Hollywood movies, I mean Coppola, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, uh, is one of the examples of, you know, ble- so as you say, bleeding for their art, but we- without you know losing everything, but with that, with really real implications about his personal life into his work. So um, yeah, you, you mentioned listening to Nina Simone when you were younger. So did you grow up in a house where your parents like exposing you to a lot of music? Did they play music at all? They did play music, although music wasn't the first, uh, the main sort of uh, center of attention. It, uh, my parents were theater people. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was a theater director and started a sc- uh, drama school as well, um, like a national drama school in my, my hometown. And he directed it for years and he was a drama teacher and he was my drama teacher actually for, for several years. Um, so... I was trained uh, in the dramatic art, <laughs> like you say, France. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the music was sort of a, more in the background. There were a few like French singers my mum would like, you know. Uh, um, but ne- the jazz music came into my life because I I was always on the piano, and my parents uh, introduced me to an incredible jazz pianist who became my teacher for 10 years. And I was eight years old when I met him. And this guy was this genius, uh, older guy with, with, he was a Spanish, uh, from Spanish uh, family. And he was just incredible musician. And, 
and it, it gave me my first opportunities to uh, perform in front of people. And he met me when I was eight. And so he made me sing every Saturday. So I'd go to his house and his wife was there making food. And I would sit at the piano. He would teach me all the jazz standards, you know. Um, and then we would swap seats and then I will sing. And he would t- teach me, you know, like, I don't know. Your eyes are blue, your kisses too. I never knew what they could do. You know, all this stuff. And, and Chet Baker and uh, Billy Holiday and um, Ella Fitzgerald. And, and, and then the pianist, you know, he played me all the jazz. He, he offered me records and books about jazz the history of jazz and Mingus and Monk and, and, and it was my first edu- music education and it was, um, it was free and happy. You know, it was a really nice time for me, uh, my connection to music then and to singing. Had you been singing already or was he sort of the first one to really give you that sort of uh, like instruction? He was the first one. I mean, I had been playing piano before as mm-hmm. a kid on the house piano. I would be constantly playing improvising things i couldn't really read music um but they loved it and so i started learning reading jazz music so all the chords uh you know uh the abc and 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 all that um um but then he was the first one to teach me to sing and actually he used to say that i had a chet baker voice which is hard to believe now but uh, I think the first <laughs> first time I started to sing, it was very quiet and very calm. Well, I could hear it just there when you were singing, you know, like that, that uh, you know, reminded me yeah. exactly of that Chet Baker documentary kind of vocal. Yeah. Oh, I love that documentary Incredible. so much. It's, yeah. so, it's so weird that Flea's in it. Like, I think that's probably why I watched <laughs> it when I was a kid. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, um, I love that. So, you know, on the other side of your musical interest, you mentioned getting into The Clash. Where was sort of like the pop music or the popular music entering your life from? Was it radio or was it TV or? Pop music. Pop music. Or just popular music in general, like, you know, everything from The Clash on. Mm, I see. It would be magazines. Um, I would be, uh, you know, I I received a magazine every month. I probably begged my parents to subscribe me. There was also like the local record shop I would go to and I'd try to save money to buy records. Mm -hmm. Um, um, But I was, I think I couldn't buy more than one a week. Uh, And it felt like a really long time to wait. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And also it was so hard to choose. I had to, I could only choose one and, and it was hard. They were expensive. Like yeah. it was expensive to listen to music. Oh my um, gosh! Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, but also there was a local venue called the uh, uh, local Farm Modern, which means modern comfort. Mm-hmm. And it was a venue like a, a, uh, they had um, a fanzine uh, uh, shop. Uh, oh, awesome! And yeah, it was really good. And then they had uh, like a whole gallery for contemporary art stuff like but more like underground you know like uh, new artists and um and they had uh, a lot of gigs there so i used as soon as i could i went there to see as many gigs as i could what was the first Um, concert you went to even before you were going to those gigs uh the first concert i went to was was with my parents we were visiting paris for, for like three days or something and we walked by a big venue called the olympia Mm-hmm. And uh, a French singer, which was one of my mum's favorite, was playing. It's called Bashun. 
And there were still tickets left. So we booked, we took tickets to see him that night. And so we went and I could see my mom being like, so, you know, so in love and so, <laughs> <laughs> so crazy about that singer. And he spent the whole gig sitting on a really high chair, you know, and he had leather pants, I remember. <laughs> uh, and then we, I remember not really knowing what to think about this. And then, um, I think I was waiting for something to happen, but nothing was happening. And then, and then at the end of the show, I remember walking out of the venue and two older ladies were saying, Oh my God, he was so rock. How rock was that? And in my head, I was like, that was so not rock. Like, <laughs> you know, I was like, that's not rock. You think leather pants is rock? Fuck off. So <laughs> I remember very well that feeling. Oh, where did you kind of, you mentioned that other venue you went to. What was the first kind of gig you went to there? I, I can't tell you because I can't remember, but I do remember seeing Kim Gordon there. Oh, awesome. Like uh, solo? And all, yeah, she came with a project. You know, she always has so many projects. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember who she was working with at the time, but she was playing with a DJ, I think, or with someone, and she was on the guitar and doing vocals. I mean, doing like crazy, amazing things she does. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, and, and I was quite young then. I was 13 or something. Um, but that was like a legendary sort of venue where Sonic Youth came before and Fugazi came and, you know, in the, in the 90s, 80s. And um, so um, there was sort of a history to the place. Um, uh, and there's also this New York band that came to play called Blonde Redhead. Oh, if you incredible band. Those. Yeah. Incredible band. And I used to be a massive fan after I saw them. Uh, and, and, and yeah, I remember their record, buying their record after I saw them and regretted not having bought the record before I saw them because <laughs> I didn't know the songs when they played, but they blew my mind. I was completely transcended by that. So what about local bands? What kind of, you know, local music scene was happening around them? Like were bands opening for these bands when they would come through? Yeah, there was a local scene. I mean, uh, in my region, so it, uh, Midwest of France, uh, two hours uh, from the sea and there's like three major cities there. And we kind of used to fight <laughs> again, who was the coolest, you know, uh, and each city had their venues and, but different sort of um, economies. So sometimes there was a bigger bands to another city. And, you know, I think my city was more like um, underground punk, um, but it was also a lot of DJs coming DJ Crush and, uh, you know, um, the, the, um, there was another city nearby where I went to, I used to drive with my sister there for an hour and I used to see, I remember seeing Interpol for their first show there. Um, so it was more like, you know, trendy bands, okay. and, you yeah. know. <laughs> Say <laughs> no more Interpol. again. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and um, and then there was another city called La Rochelle, and that was a real punk city, and there was a bar there where there was always punk bands playing, like local bands. And I have actually a really great memory about, I think I was with my parents, I was very young then, and I remember coming back with the car, it was quite late at night, and we were coming back from a trip probably to Italy or something, we were often taking just, they had a van, my parents, and we were just jump in the van and travel mm -hmm. and so when we came back we stopped in this village and right in the middle of france and there was no one there in that village and suddenly we hear like the noise like it's coming from inside a car or something and then there's this van that pulls up in front of us 
and the door, the slide door opens up and this loud music comes out. And then this guy's dressed as glam rock, you know, yeah. they had like glitter sort of jackets and incredible perms and, and, you know, and boots and colorful. And then I was like, what? And as a kid, it blew my mind. I was like, who is that? And they were obviously a band and yeah. they were a band from Sweden or Norway or something that were traveling across France. And they opened the door and the first thing they asked in French, they said, where is fun? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow. Oh my God. <laughs> I had a little bit of a glam period after that. You know, I was, you know, there was, um, this sort of glam rock, like T-Rex and, um, uh, you know, even Bowie and, and this sort of glam thing about, about music that interested me for a while. So I remember that very well. So what were some of the local bands called that, you know, you were a fan of them that were, you know, happening and or inspiring? Oh yeah. That was your question. I'm so sorry. Oh, no, 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 um, don't worry. No, absolutely not. Uh, local bands. So yeah, there were local bands and I was one of them at some point as well. I had a, a band called Motel. <laughs> God. Um, and they would do like, you know, under bridges sort of festivals, but you know, it was really rough and, um, and sort of DIY. Um, but it was fun. There was one band I really loved called uh, Microfilm. Mm-hmm. Um, they used to, um, they used to perform in front of like footage of old movies, but it was really like, it was the first time I could see a band I knew that was actually taking care of, you know, their stage performance as well as their music. And it was all instrumental, instrumental music, and it was really good music. And, um, but there was a whole concept around it and, uh, around you know repatching some some scenes from movies and make them work together and recreate a, a scenario and you know um, and that worked really well I thought that was really good. Um, did, did they uh, put out any records? Yeah, they have. Yeah, sure, locally for sure. I gotta um, check them out. Yeah. So what was what was Motel like? <laughs> I don't think it was really really good. I mean, I, <laughs> they were really good musicians. Um, they were really good musicians. There was, uh, they were big fans of music and, um, the main guy who formed the band, uh, sort of rented a house and bought a van and we were like, uh, rehearsing in the basement. Um, he would be, you know, there was a mix of, of people in there. And I think the guitarist was very into mel- melodies and, you know, and I was still very much into jazz in the way I was singing. Mm-hmm. So, um, it wasn't very punk. Uh, it was more quite soft. Um, and I never really felt very comfortable. With that. <laughs> um, but it was a good experience though. And I actually stopped that band when I met Johnny Hostile. Um, and, and we started making music together and I realized, Oh, that's what it's like. You know? Yeah. Uh, I felt it was really a great connection. Yeah. Well, like you mentioned, you know, earlier on, you know, Fugazi being one of those bands that really, you know, turned your head. Were there other bands around that time that you were kind of like, okay, that's what I want to be more like. I don't want to be doing this soft music. Yes. Um, well, there was this, uh, female band called Electrolane, mm-hmm. um, which I was a huge fan of, um, the D2 records with Steel Albany oh, or okay. Free Records. 
Can't remember. Oh, Electrolene. I know. Yeah, absolutely. That band's awesome. Okay. Uh, they're amazing. Uh, I mean, Mia, the guitarist, is one of the best guitarists I've ever seen <laughs> uh, on stage. She has this sort of, like, a bit like Kim Gordon in the sense of, you know, you hold, yeah, it's like tension and then release. And it's it's really incredible to watch. Um, and I love their record so much. And I love the way it was, um, you know, they could be really loud sometimes. It wasn't really punk, obviously. Sorry about that. No. <laughs> but but uh, but that was one of the bands I was a big fan of. And I, luckily, I saw them on their last tour. Um and there's rumors they're reforming actually right now, but I don't know. Uh, that would be awesome. That would be right? awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So would you travel a lot to go to other shows in other cities? Was that kind of like, was it, you know, like you mentioned these, you know, the three towns with their different styles. Was it sort of a thing where you, kids would intermingle from the different places? Yeah, I, I would definitely do that. Um, I would rarely go to Paris to see, to see performances, you know, um, uh, the only time I did that, uh, or the f- actually, no, the first time, and then I started doing it more, but was for yeah, yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I managed to find a copy because that was really hard from where I was. All right, uh, of the EP, the first EP they released uh, before um, Fever to Tell, and then and and then I I was a fan with my friend, and we. We, we traveled, took the train and traveled and, 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 and arrived late to the show, sweating. And then, <laughs> and then Nick and, and Brian went on stage and Karen didn't fucking show up. And it was, it took 20 minutes, I think, for her to show up. I mean, the crowd <laughs> was going mental. And when she finally showed up, she was rolling herself between the wall and the curtain. So you could see only her feet. And she was sort of screaming in the microphone. I hadn't seen something like that. I was like, what is this? <laughs> and I was, I was in between, like, I think my mouth was open all the way through, like in shock. But I also wanted to scream. Like, it was so exciting. So... Mm-hmm. So I, that was one of my greatest, yeah, first experience as a, as a gig on my own with my friend in a city I didn't know, you know, all those things. Um, yeah. Um, and they were, yeah. So they, they were, I can't remember how old I was, but I was quite young. And um, I remember there was Liars as well. I was really a big fan of and um, all those New York City bands. And But to go back a little bit, because that's a little bit later, but, I think Sonny Cuth was one of my big, big, um, like crush as well. Cause my drummer in motel was a huge Sonny Cuth fan. So he gave me the biography, he gave me, you know, all their records and I started to really dig in. Um, yeah. Yeah. They're one of the best bands ever. Do you have a particular favorite record by them? Well, actually, you know what? I really love, um, rather ripped. Oh yeah, uh, which is their last record. Yeah, yeah I I know it's not very conventional, but I, I think it's a great record. I think it's a, it's a. But I mean, Goo was the first one I listened to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I think it was I bought it because of the artwork. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it was. I mean, it was so popular that artwork, right? They had to make T-shirts of those, um, but. Um, 
That's just yeah, such an iconic is. cover. Yeah, it's just yeah. something that just, uh, I don't know, just Raymond Pettibon's art, um, uh, like all through Black Flag and stuff. But I don't know, there's just something like you're saying about that yeah. piece where it just, you know, it hits so hard. But you know, like my first hardcore gig was a bit later. It was Johnny Hostile who took me to, oh, no. Oh, God, I just had a memory. There was a local band when I when I started hanging out with Johnny Hostel and making music with him. So I was much more in his in his city, in Angoulême, it's called. Um, and there was an art school there, and the people who gravitated around the art school, which was great, were um, bands. You know, uh, people in bands and and who were connected with those art students, and they were doing parties. One day we went to this gig. Uh, and one of the bands was called Grunt Grunt, Grunt Grunt, and it was a grindcore band. I had never listened to grindcore ever in my life before. Um, and Johnny has tried to explain the basics of it, and I was so excited about it. What happened? So all the songs were, um, I don't know, 10 seconds short, <laughs> you know, yep. uh, grindcore style. Mm-hmm. And the singer was in a wheelchair, so he was pretty epic. And we were in this sort of um, sort of deserted place, and on the floor it was all this dust. And then in the middle of the gig, when they were still carrying on playing then, he, one of the guitarists put his guitar down, went into his car, it was redneck style. Went into his car and then starting making turns, like um, how do you say, circles with his car, like donuts. On, yeah, donuts <laughs> with his car, and then there was a massive, like, uh, dust all over everybody. We couldn't even breathe. Um, but with the violence of the music, that was epic. That was beautiful. It was like a piece of art that moment, and the screaming and that car going rah. I was like, what? It was really, really epic and, and great. I've never and heard then, of a car being used as an instrument until now. That's the first thing of that. That's awesome. Me neither. <laughs> that was redneck. Uh, I loved it. Um, that was a brilliant show. And they were really great guys. I mean, the singer of that grand core band was a massive Doors fine, f- fan. Yeah. He could play anything on the organ uh, from the Doors, which is, you know, it's a skill. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Doors have some good songs too, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, and you know Ray Manzarek, he was in, he was in the Lazy Guy on the Keys, like he he was pretty hammering it. So I was really well impressed when we visited him later on in his flat, and he was playing us the Doors. Um, what a diverse taste too for that person to have. I know he was a genius, that guy. He was he was. Uh, I mean, he still is probably. I, I haven't seen him for a long time, but I know he still lives there. He's the kind kind of guy who would know everything about history and, you know, a real geek, like a real nerd in the sense of, of the word. Um, yeah, I love that guy very much. He was very clever. He was really into philosophy. Um, yeah. And speaking of, like, you know, history of music stuff, how much awareness is there, you know, growing up, like, about, like, the history of punk in France, like, going back to, like, Stinky Toys and Metal Urbane? Because... You know, like it yeah. starts in at the same time as it's starting, or maybe even before as it's starting in England. Yeah, because uh, I've heard that Per Ubi mm-hmm. was actually a big influence for American bands. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, but you can't really take the crown away from Richard Hell. He keeps saying he's the king of punk, isn't it? So <laughs> 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 I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Johnny Rotten, Richard Hell, or is it France? I don't know. But the, they the, were for, really. Sorry, yeah. sorry, go on. No, no, go for it. Well, because I guess the Sex Pistols, the first place they ever tour is is France, right? They played those shows with the Stinky Toys in like 76 yeah. or something. Yeah. I mean, the Stinky Toys were pretty much there very early on. And also they were touring in England as well mm-hmm. themselves. And um, Ellie Medeiros, the singer of uh, Stinky Toys, she was on the cover of the NME, um, you know, at the time, which was a pretty big thing. Um, but I, I think... Uh, um, they were amazing. I mean, if you see footages of the stinky toys, uh, like TV stuff, it's so amazing. Like she's she's talking to the the journalist with this really really nice voice, and she's really quiet. And then as soon as the music starts, she's like, yeah! and she's like <laughs> bending her knees, and she's on the floor in like two seconds. I was like, oh my god! Oh, they're amazing. That's I love those records. Yeah. It, so were they played, like, would they be played on, like, you know, radio at all? Or, or would you, like, see that footage nah. on TV? No. I, no. I saw this footage much later on. I mm-hmm. mean, I was too young as well to know them at the time. Oh, no. I, yeah. I mean, but I, but I mean after but the I, fact type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh no. It's internet. I think yeah. it's the internet. Yeah. I've got my, one of my best friends was uh, Etienne Dao, and he's very close to them. He's a, he's a really big pop singer in France. Uh incredible guy who has a real knowledge of you know music and and they came from the same city so in his house he had all these pictures that of the time and when they were young and you know um so that's awesome yeah. i yeah i've only really started discovering like all these incredible bands from france that i had like no idea about you know and like even like metal urbane and like going metal boys and this whole history of like like proto industrial or stinky toys, like that's like proto what would you know eventually people market you know or, or start calling like like pop punk or or, or even like yeah. riot girl stuff before any of that stuff. Like it's amazing how it's there's a lot of this sort of like you know the dent the dentists. I read about this band the other day that never put out a record and they're going in like '74 <laughs> in France. Oh wow! No, I don't know them. I, I had no idea about them till the other day when I was reading this article. <laughs> but they sound I actually, incredible. I actually think my knowledge in in, in French. Uh, punk music is quite limited and I, y- you talking to me about it makes me think that I really need to bridge that gap, you know? Well, I th- it's funny how they don't like, you know, like American and especially in England, like you hear about these first wave punk bands, but all these other countries, mm-hmm. like even in Canada, we, like we don't hear about yeah. all these incredible bands that were coming out back then. It's just kind of like, it's so much is dominated by British or American bands. It is. And although they did exist, but I think also there's not enough, um, journalists who picked that wrote about them and picked picked up on them and you know and, and it's not really media coverage but you know what i mean like history taking care of that history is is a heritage you know and and that heritage just needs to be you know told and and cared for and and i think in france sadly uh we take care of our you know french singing heritage uh, much more than our English speaking heritage, which might explain explain why uh, a lot of English singing bands uh, uh, just ended up being forgotten um, or not really talked about really well, or because there's generally not much interest if it's not sung in French. Still today, it's uh, it's a very strange thing, but it's uh, it's really uh, profound here. 
What about music television? Like, is I, I guess there's there's must be. Oh, I know there is MTV France, but like, was there like much videos that would be played of of bands that were kind of coming up at this time, like the Yeah and things like that? Would you see those videos on TV, or is it once again on the internet that you're finding this stuff? No, I did. There was not much internet then uh, when I was a teenager. Uh, my friend had a good connection and we would go on forums of, you know, bands and try to connect with other fans. And that was the first time I was doing things like that. Um, but it was mainly, it was mainly through press and through TV and TV would be, there would be like a, a daily show with a band every night um, that we all watched. Um, and and I saw, so it was a little bit more main, mainstream, you know, but I saw the, you know, you'd see, I don't know, PG Harvey or, you know, you'd see, I don't know, Massive Attack or, um, so it was more like the, the, the late nineties, early two thousands then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'd see Jeff Buckley, you'd see Tricky, you'd see, um, and, yeah, and I, I remember uh, discovering a lot of music through through that medium, for sure. It's also amazing, like all the stuff you're saying, it, it's all great stuff. You know, it's not necessarily the stuff that you would have been seeing at the same time on, you know, in some of those cases you would be, but not in every case on like, you know, late night American talk shows or Saturday yeah. Night Live or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, they're mainly British stuff, what I just mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of American bands, but nothing comes up. <laughs> who, who were the biggest sort of French bands around that time kind of doing that style? Or like not, not that, well, you know, like alternative yeah. kind of French bands. Yeah, there was one band called Noir Désir, mm-hmm. um, which I used to listen to when I was a kid. And it was kind of a gun clubby sort of vibe. Oh, awesome. Um, and they were pretty, they were massive here. Um, and I, I used to love them. Sadly, it has been like, a big controversial when the singer killed his um his girlfriend uh, <laughs> yeah um, okay so it, it's um it's pretty controversial to mention them now um and the band is over now of course mm-hmm. but um she was called she was a very famous uh, actress here called mary mary Trantignon. Mm-hmm. she was a daughter of um of a very famous French actor here, um, who I really love. So, um, so it, it's, um, yeah, it was quite tragic. Um, but that was kind of the band I used to listen to around 15, 13, 15. So I, I take he's still in prison, I would imagine. No, he's out now. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Very controversial, but he's out. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. That's definitely, uh, yeah, I, I've never heard of that. It's it's amazing too because you know obviously Canada has two official or three official languages, but two two official languages with with Quebec, um, yeah, and uh, with and with French there. And so there's a lot of I know cross cultural. Like you find albums, but that's how I know about all these French punk bands because you would find them when you go to Montreal and go to old record stores, you know, you'd see the dogs yeah. album or all these like, you know, stinky toys, seven inches and stuff like that. But I've yeah. never heard of this band at all. And that's such a harrowing story. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's quite sad. I mean, there were the first record they did Noir Désir was very, very a copycat of gun club. And then they moved, moved out of it. And then they kind of found their own sound. Uh, but the lyrics were really good, and I remember it was it was a good band. It was it was a really good band. Um, 
Yeah, I'm trying to think of somebody else. We have like, we have a French singer right now, which if you listen to the music, you definitely didn't think it was punk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and actually, you know, when I think it's Fallon, when Fallon does the, um, you know, he picked a record cover or an artist to make fun of. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you, it's, it's Fallon who does that, right? I think on Jimmy um, Fallon he does it, yeah. Yeah. So he picked him. Um, <laughs> and then he eventually came to perform on the show. His name is uh, Philip Catherine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to describe the, the level of nihilism in his music. Um, it's to a point where it's almost music for kids. You know what I mean? It's, it's, um, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, um, free, like lyrics would be like freedom, my ass or, uh, <laughs> equality, my ass. Uh, you know, fraternity, my ass, which is the three words of the French nation, you know? Yeah. Um, like it's real punk. Like it's real, uh, it's quite gangster the way he does things, but his music is, is not, <laughs> but I think it's what we have uh, as close to a punk right now. <laughs> <laughs> so is he mainstream popular, I guess? Yeah. It's huge. It's oh, really wow. huge now. He's even an actor now. And, uh, and uh but look look him up he looks like he looks like shit but he used to he used to he used to um i used to listen to him when i was younger and he used to do bossa nova oh like wow. he did a whole record with anna karina oh uh, the actress yeah. uh of bossa nova and yeah it's it's, it's fun though that is amazing so like he's at this point, I guess, like, you know, a mainstream star. And is it like sort of French torch music almost like singer type? No, it's hard to describe. It's, abs- it's absurd. Very it's bizarre. absurd music. I don't even know how to tell you why it just, everyone loves it because it's so, there's a whole song where it's him saying, what is your name? Philip. <laughs> what is your name? Philip. What is your name? Feet, lip. So he gets really angry. And it's, so it's, I don't know how, it's like, it's like modern art in, in that's I don't awesome. know. That's awesome. I, Jenny, I got to thank you because you've given me so much to check out. Like, that's why I want to do this podcast. I'm not sure you'll be so happy once you listen to it. Oh, there's, there's so much stuff for me to check out now. <laughs> from, from microfilm to. Check to... his videos. I think <laughs> if you, I, I don't know if you have a little bit of French in you, um, a Maybe little, not. little bit. We we take it in <laughs> you school. You might be lost if not. Yeah, well, no, we they, they we teach it. They teach it in school, and it's taught so poorly that I know very few people, unless they do French immersion, that wind up with any sense of the French language after they leave school. So, but I, right. I do have a bit of a foundation. But I, I think I will make this work. I will get out my French <laughs> English dictionary and, and make this work. <laughs> um, but that. So going back to your journey, how did you meet uh, Johnny? Um, how did I meet Johnny? Through, through a band of friends we had in common, like we had friends in common and they were in a band mm-hmm. and he was doing like additional keys for them sometimes and, you know, or production or synths. Um, and the band was like a rock band and they were my friends. Um, and they eventually got signed, um, and then got dropped. <laughs> um, but they, 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 I, rem- I remember they were the first like 
people I used to hang out that had a band that had gigs that had, you know, that were trying to make on, make their own artwork or trying to release a record, you know? Um, and we met through them. Um, I remember at a new year's Eve party and the first thing he asked me, I was sort of humming, uh, love will tear us apart, um, by joy division. Mm -hmm. And he turned to me and was like, do you know joy division? Like, (laughs) do you want to be my wife? Uh, <laughs> and then I, I was like, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. And then we started talking. Um, and then we started talking and then we realized we had so much in common, including his ex-girlfriend who I know was, had been cheating on him for a year. So I kind of told him that and we bonded on, <laughs> <laughs> on that. He was like, she did not. I was like, yes, she did. Um, and then, and then, yeah, and then we, I think it was nice. I mean, for, after six months, we knew each other. Um, I was supposed to go to Leeds uh, for the summer because I always went to England uh, in the summer mm-hmm. um, since I was 15. And I was supposed to go to Leeds to work at a restaurant, you know, and then, and then just spend some time there. And then he, he said to me, but, you know, it's nice you're going there, but why don't we just lock ourselves up in a, in a studio and do some music together? And, uh, you know, it was like, fuck Leeds. <laughs> Let's make some music. I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I mean, I, I yeah, okay. And then what was great about working with Johnny is that and up until that point, the only tools I had was a pen and paper. Um, and... He taught me how to build the drums. He told me how to use a microphone. He told me how to record myself. He told me how to make edits on the computer. He told me how um, compressors worked. He told me how uh, the desk worked. And, you know, it's, it, you know, and he, and he kind of said, go and do it. You know, he kind of just gave me all those tools. And I was like, oh, my God, I can do so much mm-hmm. like, with, with all this. And I could be creative with music in a way I had never be, been doing before. Um, and, and whenever I'd had an idea, I was like, record it. And there was so much freedom in, in that. And I'd be so frightened to sing or to scream. or And then I'd be like kicking me kicking me him out and just recording my vocals, asking him to come back, you know. Mm-hmm. But it was great because I felt it was a whole new world for me. And also my ideas were appreciated and you know and shared and you know it's it's like any story when you start a band this is sort of um yeah you know abolition of ideas and and excitement and um and then we did our first demo with our friend's tattooist who was doing artworks he did the artwork for the demo we 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 screen printed them ourselves um you know, and cut them all and did, did all of that, or, you know, all the copies ourselves and we shipped them to Rough Trade in London. And they picked it up and they put it on their website and they reviewed it. And we were like, what? <laughs> I mean, I made this with my hands and glue and, you know, and this was so insane. I can't tell you how excited we were. So we did a MySpace page and then... Um, and then a few weeks later, there was a promoter in Malta, of all places. So Malta is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. near Italy. And they, he calls us because he saw our review on the Rough Trade website. And we, we thought, he thought we were really big. So he said, <laughs> I'm buying you records. Uh, sorry, I'm buying you um, uh, tickets to fly to Malta for this show. <laughs> and it was our first show. We're like, what? And we were like, yeah, sure. What the fuck? So we said yes. And tickets, plane, plane tickets bought. We arrived. We had like really nice welcome. Really great people showed us around. We were there for a few days. We had a great time. They had a band as well. We were like listening to, I remember they were big fans of Bell and Sebastian. They were playing us new music I'd never heard. And then came the gig. My God, it was like a queue around the block for the gig. I was like, oh my God, all these people. I mean, at the time it was probably 300 people, 400 people. But for me, it was like enormous. For a first show, that's incredible. To this day, I'd be stuck with 300 people showed up. (laughs) I know. And, you know, and also, yeah, exactly. And you, and I just, um, we were so unprofessional, right? That um, we set up our gear, then, you know, um, the crowd came. I was so nervous. I kept going to the toilet, and then, and then suddenly I couldn't wait anymore. And I, I looked at Johnny. I was like, "We have to go and play. I can't wait. Like I've got too much fear, and we need to go and play." So we go on stage and we start playing. The sound engineer, we forgot to tell him we were going to perform. So he was in the loo, and he was like, "Is that the band playing?" <laughs> And so he rushed out and, you know, and all the front of house was not um, open. Uh, so nobody could hear what we were doing uh, or barely hear. And then, and then that was, and we, and then, oh yeah. And then we played for 20 minutes. <laughs> That's and amazing. We stepped out of stage and the promoter was like, why are you not playing like an hour, an hour and a half? And we were like, That's all we got. We don't have more music. <laughs> you know, we only released an EP. Um, but they were still very lovely and it was a really good experience. You put out a motels recording the same year that the, the Jenny and John, uh, the John and Jen EP comes out. Um, do they overlap at all the bands? Because you mentioned earlier, you just, did you quit the motels immediately kind of thing and then just roll right into the band? Yeah. I I quit, um, my other band immediately. I, I told the guys that really, you know, I loved them, but I felt that I had found something different there and I wanted to pursue that. Yeah. Yeah. It also, I guess, speaks to how influential Rough Trade, you know, still is obviously as a label, but yeah. like, you know, it just, you know, it's just such that force ever since it started. Yeah. And I, it was a dream. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I really didn't expect them to pick it up. Mm-hmm. But that, that, you know, that's so much, you know, that speaks a lot. That speaks volume about the value of those guys who like music lovers working that maybe with an intern, you know, it was like, I don't know bored um they, but i think generally they love the music yeah you know and they love the effort and they love we probably wrote a massive letter you know what i mean like mm-hmm. we made it really look good and i think it, it's this sort of diy thing and they they there was still someone on the other end who could you know um you know catch that and and and, and notice it and it was not much for them but and then when we we went to london because then we moved to London permanently a year after that. Um, we we used to go to Rough Trade to just see our demo there. It was still there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they probably didn't sell any, but uh, <laughs> it was still there. 
but they, uh, you know, but it's, you're right. Like it does, you know, no matter how big it got, you know, in, in with the Smiths and all these bands that blew up on that label, like it still retained that sense mm. of DIY, like, you know, Sean Forbes works there. Like there's just like a, a real sort of like sense of it. And they're still like, you know, helping out bands by putting demos in their shop when they don't have to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That was over 10 years ago. I don't know if they do still do that. I hope they do. Yeah, I hope they do too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now that I've yeah. bragged about them doing it, I really hope they still do it and they have changed. <laughs> yes. This is a reminder, rough trade. <laughs> <laughs> so, it started my whole career. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, and there's bands from here too. Like I remember there's this band, Barcelona Pavilion, that I don't think played at, to any more than like 50 people when they were around. But yet here they were featured in rough trade. And because of that, they got to do a peel session. They got, you know, all these things out of that. And it was just because this cool DIY thing. Exactly. You mentioned moving to London. Where did like, was that kind of immediately after the Malta gig? It was probably a year after. Okay. Um, yeah. So what kind of scene did you fall into playing? Like, did you play much live when you got back to France with the band? Um, we played a few gigs, you know, in our hometown and then, and then maybe one or two in Paris, but it was clear that France was not going to be the country. Um, we were singing in English. Um, and also it was always had been a dream of mine to move to London. Cause, uh, as I said, like from the age of 15, I, I went there every year, all the time, anytime I could. And I knew, uh, a few people there. Um, and so I suggested to Johnny to first, we, we went there ourselves. We drove there. So from our city, so it was like, like 12 hours drive. And, um, we take the boat to cross the, the sea mm-hmm. and, and then he, he liked it and he liked the people I introduced him to there. And then we permanently moved there in 2006, I think, um, October, 2006. Um, and, and yeah, and the first thing we did was just to give our MySpace address to every promoter in every club and every bars of the city. We'd go to, you know, per what we had been reading about, you know, Joy Division or we'd go to the Hope and Anchor, you know, the first the, the first club Joy Division played when they first came to London and mm-hmm. it was the night that Ian Curtis had his epileptic fists, you know, his first anyway, it was but when we played it, it was a shithole. It was <laughs> Is it smelled like piss and alcohol and 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 I was sick and there was no one there so it was it was you know so you start to understand how the city works um, we we had like bad promoters who made us pay to perform and then we were like okay that's not what we need to do so you sort of learn you know and we were living in this um, in this room is this bedroom in in this house with other people. Um, and this this room became our rehearsal place, our recording place. We did our entire recorded our entire first record there, um, and where we would eat and you know watch TV and and then rehearse and then write and um, and then whenever we could we we'd perform. And I was giving to live. I was teaching French uh, for my income, mm-hmm. um, and and yeah, and then. Um, and then we found this venue in northwest London called the Luminaire uh, in Kilburn. It's called the area. It doesn't exist anymore, as, but I have like memorabilia of objects from there because we played the last gig there when it closed down. 
And that ho- that place became our home. It became, we started working there, uh, doing security or the door or cloakroom or, um, and we became super friends with the sound engineer and the sound engineer is still my sound engineer now. Mm. Um, and we became really close friends with the, the director there, the, the promoter who became Savage's tour manager uh, later on. And those people welcomed us and it was the first sort of place where we could perform whenever we wanted. We, we could, you know, see all the bands we wanted to see. Um, and and also meet like it was a really good quality club it was the music and the sound system was very very high quality it was great but there was like big signs on the wall saying shut up if you're here to talk to your pals go downstairs this is a place for music i was just <laughs> so about to ask you because i think i played that show and i was gonna say did they have signs no. on the walls that shut up when the bands are playing there you go. Yeah. Oh, and it has like a, it had like, like two or three steps down just before the stage. Yes, exactly. Oh, I like, that was an incredible club. Absolutely. It was so good. Oh, it was yeah. and the people there that when we played the, the last show there, um, <laughs> and the Ingalls, the, 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 you know, the, the, the promoter and director of the venue, he created a whole funeral <laughs> so, <laughs> with a coffin it was how crazy and serious he was about his job. I've never seen someone work so hard um, in in a, in a venue of this size. He cared so much, yeah. and and you could see like bands from Australia, you could see bands from America. You could there was so much uh, um, you you could connect with so many people. And I think the the first I always remember that the first audience I had was other artists in a way. They were the first to give me accolades and say, this is good. What you're doing is good, you know. And it's in places like this that it could happen. It also seems like when you got to London, you're very much doing, like we were talking about off the top, like the kind of Fugazi, uh, Cassavetes thing of of really living with your art. Yeah. Yeah, because they were my heroes. And, and you know, um, all, you know, the cramps. Uh, because also I was in yeah. a couple in a relationship with someone I was making music with. So obviously like any, any sort of couple in, in music would be my, my models, you know, sort mm-hmm. of youth, of course, or even, even Johnny Cash and Jim Carter, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in a different style. <laughs> um, but, uh, I love this sort of, yeah. And the cramps obviously. And, and, you know, um, I, I, I yeah, I love, I was romanticizing a lot that life and that that moment in my life and and you know i remember telling johnny i'm not an artist you know i can't call myself an artist he was like what the hell are you if you're not an artist you know that's what you're doing right now and and i i just couldn't really realize that's what i was doing and sometimes it's it's a shame because it takes time to catch up with what you're already doing i've always been doing that like doing things before i understand what what i'm doing (laughs) (laughs) um but uh, yeah, I remember it with really great, yeah, with a lot of. Uh, I mean, it was hard, you know. It was also really hard. I remember, you know, loading gear in the snow, in the heat, and in, in the rain. And um, I remember doing small tours, coming back with no money. I remember, you know, but but also everything was possible. So I think. When we packed, when we released our first record and we packed the Luminaire, for instance, uh, that was, I was shaking with fear, but I couldn't believe there were people there. Mm. 
It's like, really? For us? <laughs> it's amazing. It's also, I've had a, like a lot of, you know, artists on recently that kind of came out of London and it's, it, it's amazing how hard of a town that is to be a musician just because it's so predatory and there's yeah. just, and the music industry sucks at the best of times, but it seems like it super yeah. sucks there, like having to pay for shows and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think it got a bit better. Uh, I've got really good friends now who are promoters in London and they're doing an incredible job. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, I just think um, it was particularly then pretty, you know, venues were pretty deleric. De de Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, no, it's not a word. Is it a word? Derelict. Der right. yeah, thank you. Derelict. Um, yeah, venues were pretty derelict and they were run down and there was no money. I think now it's a little bit better. Um, but I mean, you still, if you still play the windmill in southeast London, you, you're still playing a shithole, you know, but it's got a great history <laughs> yeah, yeah. and, and people go there for a different experience, you know, and it's, it's, it means something else, you know, but there's so many, in a, in the course of 10 years, can't tell you how many clubs shut down. Like it's insane. So many places of uh, parts of my history and the history of those times is gone. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, CBGB is gone, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Um, but those clubs, I mean, CBGB is uber legendary, of course, but, but I think those clubs have a part of history to tell, you know, um, and, and when they shut down, it, it breaks my heart. Yeah. Cause you're right. Like it also, it's also the shutting down of like a little ecosystem that forms around these clubs, like you yourselves in the Luminaire. Yeah, it's an ecosystem, exactly. And you need that when you're a musician because you need to, st when you start from nowhere with no contacts, no connection, you need those people at, you know, at the, the grassroots of music and that's where you start. And, and it, it's, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, the, the, the way I was treated, the way, the respect. When, when we performed the first time we performed at the Luminaire, the sound engineer, Matt Ferrar, who became our sound engineer from that day, said to us, are you, are you got any shows in London after this one? And we said, yeah, we've got another one next week at the social. It was like, I'll be there. And we thought, oh, he's just going to be there to see the show. No, he came to, to do the sound. Wow. <laughs> for free. You know, for free. Yeah, and he did yeah. that for two years for us, for free. And then when we finally got a record deal, we gave him a bunch of money, you know, to pay him back for all what he had done with, for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we, we made him stay with us until now. Um, it, f it feels like that also would have been such an exciting time. Well, I was like, that was the first time we went over to play around London, around that sort of like 2006, 2007 era. Yeah. And it, it feels like, like you're saying it, it's, it's better now because that was sort of like almost like a, a new wave of, of kids showing up in bands and, and clubs and venues. Like it felt like, you know, like there was sort of like bubbling up of what would become the new scene in a couple more years. Yeah. I, I mean, definitely when I started Savages before, just before I started Savages. So that's like five years forward. And, uh, we, 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 we end John and Jen. We don't want to do another record of John and Jen. Uh, we start our own record label called Pop Noir. We've had really bad experiences with contracts we signed mm. with, uh, with 
uh, record company. It's the first contract you sign, and obviously you sign for life forever, everything. Um, and for 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 a, a check that seems really big at the time because you've kind of lived with nothing all that time, but in retrospect, it's nothing, you know. Um, but anyway, and. And I do remember that I felt a bit frustrated with the scene in London. It felt that at that point, it, it was all about the bands and their management and playing shows just for the sake of being seen by agents. It was like showcases after showcases. And the crowds were not engaging. Or they were not invited to be engaged, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember very well that when I started Savages, I, I, I thought, I'm, I want to change that. Like... I don't, um, and so that, that's, that's why very early on we put all those signs about um, not using your phones during gigs, uh, trying to capture people's attention. And that was kind of an influence of the Luminaire as well, you know, putting signs up. Um, that's something I, I learned from Andy Ingalls, who was a, still our tour manager then. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, But yeah, I mean, the only band that really was creating chaos wherever they played was this Japanese band called Boningen. Boningen. And Boningen. And Boningen uh, were, they still exist. They're still a band. And they're incredible musicians. And every time they played, it would be like a storm washing you over. It would be like <laughs> sort of uplifting but crazy you never knew if a guitar was going to swing up uh, you know just above your head you, you would never know it's so explosive and um and with very long straight hair they, they looked incredible so i was a massive fan of boningen and um and so when we started savages my my whole intention was about the stage was about live performance was about trying to revive i was sick of people telling me about punk music and how it was great before how it was great in the 80s you know and how well now you know it's in the past fuck those you know bbc documentaries again and again about you know sort of washing us about how it used to be amazing but i was like but what about now you know we have things we want to say you you know Things, these things that make, really make me angry, and I really want to shut them, sh you know, sh scream them. And and then I felt um, the crowds were still not engaging, so it was about trying to find a way to make that happen. Um, yeah. And like, so yeah, what, as far as artists that were engaging, because like you know, obviously Kim Gordon's an incredible performer, but. She's she's not attacking that stage in the same way that you attack that stage in in her style. Like, were there any influences specifically that were like that you were driving towards as far as like that kind of owning the stage? Yeah, um, yeah, Susie. You know, of course. I mean, I was compared to her a lot when I started, and I always was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's this idea of like I have no masters, uh, but obviously Susie. I mean, she's. Uh, I remember watching footages of her, um, and um, trying to understand how she would stand. You know, how she, my my big question about stage performance was: What do I do when I don't sing? Because I think when I'm singing, I'm all right. I think I can, I can, I know what I can do. What do I do when I don't sing? Yeah. 
I feel the same. I feel that so much. <laughs> but you need to you need to to take care of those gaps because that's what's going to make the whole gig a whole difference. If you if your intensity goes down every time you're not singing, you're losing everyone. Yeah, you know, between each line. Mm-hmm. So that was one of my first questions. I think it was a mix of my French influences from my roots, like Jack Brel. I used to watch a lot of his performances because I love what he used to do with his hands. Um, and the drama, the French drama, I think is really, really uh, rooted in me. Um, which obviously, you know, the punk bands were really influenced by French culture, you know, by Baudelaire, by, you know, um, and poets and and writers of, uh, you know, the French... Uh, romantics and um so i felt that i had some of that in me that i could use mm-hmm. i mean there was patty um patty smith she's the sort of mother figure obviously there was pg harvey there was um great performances you know but there's also iggy pop mm-hmm. iggy i saw him on one of the first savages tours we toured in europe and played the same festival as the stooges I mean, you know, I think he fell on me a hundred times during that show. And I, I mean, yeah, it's, it was quite amazing to be able to see them and not feeling that you're being robbed of history, you know, like you're, it's here and now still. Exactly. Like the only band I've ever seen where it feels like this would be the same in 68 as it is now with his performance. Ah, completely, completely. Uh, my other role model was Henry Rollins in so many ways. I mean, and then I stole some stage moves from uh, Mac Patton. <laughs> I have to admit, I mean, you know, the spreaded legs and two hands on the mic screaming down, looking at the floor. Yeah, that's Mac Patton. <laughs> I even stole his haircut, you know what I mean? But I mean, he's okay with that. He loves it. Come on. Uh, I, I stole Iggy's flip your wig thing where he puts his hand on his head and lifts it up like his head's <laughs> flying up. I, that's, I take that every show. So. Oh, I love that. Uh, I stole from Iggy his way of walking when his hips are going um, really exaggerated, sort of doing circles on each side. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Very feminine, very. Uh, or the gorilla, like the whole limbs shaking. <laughs> It's it's also funny you brought up the, the theater influence and performance influence because when you see you know interviews with with John Lydon he talks about how it wasn't musicians that were influencing him no. it was like Richard Burton performances and things like that yes yes the mimes and you know and yeah yeah absolutely I I remember because I saw a documentary back then about Johnny Rotten um, you, you know always opening wide his eyes on pictures. Um, and I, so I, I thought of doing something different. So I was frowning a lot. <laughs> but if, I, if he's opening, I need, I need a signature look when I, I'm being photographed. <laughs> so I, would, I used to be frowning a lot. And people hated that. Yeah. They hated me frowning. Like, I, don't, I haven't met one photographer saying to me, can, you, can we do a picture where you, you're, you're not frowning and you're smiling? And I was like, no. <laughs> what a weird thing for them to request. It's like... No, you're here to yeah. document me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm an animal. You're documenting me. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, Jenny, this has been amazing. Would you come back at some point for a part two? 
Oh, yes, I would. Absolutely. God, am I invited for part two? Oh, absolutely. This has been I a lot it. of fun. Oh, my gosh. Um, but before I let you go, can I just uh, – I just want to talk to you about that moment where flying to Berlin and husbands, that single kind of just like like yeah. blew up. Like it seemed like it caught – you know, and, and obviously, you know, your projects earlier had, had buzz around them. But like this felt yeah. like from the outside something different. Like I just wondered what it was like for yourself like during that time. I so the, the the single came out on my label Pop Noir Records. Um, how long you got? Because I don't know if I'm going to do a short one or a long. <laughs> one. I, I have. I believe me. I've got time. I just don't <laughs> want to keep you all day. Yeah. So, so many aspects I could talk about. Um, first, to release it on my record label was a real battle, like with the band. I, I really struggled to make everyone okay with that idea of doing something DIY, doing something, you know, starting from, from, from doing it ourselves. I think I had the structure. I just wanted to go with it and do it, but I felt there was a lot of resistance with management at the time. And it was, it was already a fight in that idea, but I'm, I succeeded in making it happen. And you have to imagine like when we, we put the pre-order on, we got immediately 500 requests. I was the one doing the <laughs> shipping. Okay. I mean, it's a label I created uh, like six months before. We don't have staff. Like, it's not like, I don't. And, and I'm like, shit, how do I send 500 records? I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> and, and so I asked the band, like, um, guys, I need help. Like, you need to come to my house. Um, and I bought all these envelopes and everything. And I was like, we need to get cracking. Like, <laughs> and we had in the end this sort of uh, with a friend of mine. I remember going to the post office in my van. We had like probably 10 massive bags. And then um, I, I sort of arrived and the post office officer was like, no, 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 no. You're not bringing this in. I was like, it has to go. The fans are waiting. You know, it was like so important. And then, um, and then they, they, they made me put everything back in my van and I had to do everything from home and then bring back the bags already uh, with the timber posts on it, on them. I mean, it was a whole, it took me days. It was it was a real mayhem, but you know what? I'm so glad I did this. You know, I'm so glad I did this. And recently, actually, I thought about this moment again because during confinement, I received <laughs> massive amount of boxes in my home to sign my records <laughs> for the pre-orders of "To Love Is to Live." Yeah. So I did that. I was fine with doing it. Then I reboxed them and they were ready to ship. And then I had to find a way because I was working in the studio all day when I, when they were supposed to be picked up. So I asked my neighbor, can I put them in your you know place? Can they come? So I was carrying all the boxes with my bare hand through the street going to his place. And, and I was like, this is like old times. <laughs> You know, I've done this before. And I think somehow the reason why it was okay for me, I mean, it, this all happened because of confinement and I was never supposed to receive those boxes at home and, you know, the label was supposed to take care of them, but we had to because I couldn't travel to London. Mm -hmm. So, but, but I thought, you know what? I'm resilient because I can do this. I've done this before. And, and it's no problem for me 
maybe a lot of people, maybe some people would have felt a bit overwhelmed by this or like, how do I even do this? But I think I was pretty, I just tapped myself on the back thinking, you can do this and you've done this before, you know. (laughs) Going back to the basics, you know. Uh, Jenny, anytime you want to come back and go back to the basics and talk about the basics, this podcast door is always open for you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real fun to talk to you. I'm going to have a shower now and uh, and get a bit of food. <laughs> I got to go make dinner now. <laughs> oh, well, uh, maybe there's some left on your shirt you can use, you know. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Jenny will be back for a part two at some point in the future because there's a lot more to talk about. There's definitely a lot more to get to. And yeah, and check out her new record. It's, as I said, phenomenal streaming and it's out there in the world. Physical copies are out there in the world too. To love is to live. Um, speaking of loving and living, next week on the show, we are going to be doing some loving and living. I guess it's it's kind of late, later on this week and and into next week on the show because we are going to be doing a punk is metal two shot with two of the greatest vocalists in metal, but also two of the most down punk rock hardcore kids I've ever spoken to. Well, adults, you know, they're, they're adults, but you know, hardcore kids in the descriptor sense we have next week on the show first from the band Sepultura from the band Outface just the, the 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 legend the legend this is an amazing episode oh my gosh Derek Green is on the show Derek of course has been the singer of Sepultura for for well well over 20 years at this point but before that was the well with a bunch of bands we get into all that but also in Outface a legendary obscure band that connects integrity Sepultura Civ and Filter and we talk about all of it. It is a monster episode. And then after that, uh, a couple days later, I'm going to be dropping an episode with the great Barney Greenway of the band Napalm Death. I ju- it just hit me that both of them have that last name with uh, green in it. I, that just hit me all at once. I'm sorry. I've never noticed that before. I don't know how I didn't notice that until right now as I'm looking at my notes, but wow, that's weird coincidence. But anyway, that has nothing to do with why they were booked together. They are booked together because they are legendary vocalists and also people that, oh my gosh, both these conversations go really cool places. And I think really situate, um, you know, the punk influence on a lot of metal music and, and the hardcore influence on a lot of metal music. And, you know, we get into it. We get into it. It's it's fun. Oh, I'm excited for these two. Oh, I can't wait for you to hear them. Also, Derek would not be on the show without the uh, help of my buddy, the introduction of my buddy, Danko Jones. Danko, you know, being friends with Derek and being my friend uh, made it all possible. So, you know, as, as always, I should be plugging his podcast, too, because he plugs this podcast on his show, and I would not be doing this podcast without his podcast. That's where I, I cut my teeth, as I've mentioned before on this thing. So check out the Danko Jones podcast. It is amazing, especially if you like, you know, like if you're, if you're punk rock, if you're into punk rock music, but you also like rock and metal, this is the perfect bridge. He covers a lot of other stuff, too. It's a fascinating podcast and a labor of love by one of the coolest people I know. So thanks, buddy, for uh, setting this up with Derek, too. Um, I really appreciate it. And um, that's it for me, everyone. Thank you for listening once again. 
Remember, Black Lives Matter, the lives of indigenous people matter. Go out there and get informed, get involved, sign petitions, show up if you can, donate money if you can. Uh, Vote, you know, plug your nose and vote because, um, yeah, like I'm one of those people that feels like it's just, just, you know, trying to push that button to prevent the end of the world. So go out there and and try and affect change if you can. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're in this together. We're fighting this shit together. Fuck fascism. And uh, that's it. Uh, you know, go out there and make your own culture too. It helps. It, and, and you know, it might help other people too. So go out there and do that if you can. Sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come for those organs, you're not going to need them. And, and it can help. You know, donate blood if you can. Do, do these things if you can. <laughs> you know, try as best you can. And uh, I love you. And I'll see you later on this week with uh, two two dream episodes for me. Man, I love doing this thing. Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do. Thank you to the Patreon people. Thank you to Vans. Bye-bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.